us today. Um, as was already said, we're, we're continuing our program here. Um, just to let everyone know, and I'll make another announcement at the end, we're going to have, um, there are going to be three more programs in this series next Tuesday the 4th, and we're going to be skipping Tuesday the 11th. We'll be doing Friday the 14th instead. Um, there was a conflict that we bumped into, and then the final seminar will be August 18th, uh, Tuesday, August 18th, and I'll, there'll be more announcements about that um, as we get closer, so, but I appreciate everyone's support of this program. Today, um, on to the task at hand, we have uh, a really great panel. The, the topic today is parent coordinator appointments uh, and, and uh, the effect of COVID-19 on parent coordinator involvement, uh, high conflict parenting. And I have uh, the pleasure of introducing uh, the panel here. Uh, we have Francine Gardikas, who is a family law attorney and partner at Burns and Levinson in Boston. Uh, we have Tony Pelusi. He is a, uh, he's in North Andover and he's a parent coordinator, relationship coach, mediator, conciliator, um, Used to be an attorney, right, Tony? Not anymore. Non-practicing. Okay. And, uh, and we also have Dr. John Baker. He spent 20 years at the Cambridge Court. Um, he was a uh, clinic staff member of the Children in the Law program, a psychologist. He does guardian ad litem work, uh, and also um, a child development uh, consultant and family coach, and his offices are in Belmont, Massachusetts. Thank you very much, panel. I re really appreciate your time joining us today. Um, I wanted to start by uh, at least sharing with folks, I think, and we're just gonna sort of jump right into this uh, parent coordinator conversation. I mean, I know there's, you know, there's the, the standing order. We're not gonna really get into, we're gonna assume that you know what a parenting coordinator is and you know the basics. That's not what we're gonna, I mean, we'll, it'll come up probably in the course of talking, but we're gonna assume you, you have sort of a baseline understanding of what what those roles are so we can sort of just jump into the meat. Uh, but but before we do that, I did want to point people because I think I think it's relevant to what we're talking about. When when COVID first uh, became an issue and the courthouse closed to the public, um, our the chief of the probate and family court, uh, John Casey, he put out a letter which is available on the mass.gov website and it was an open letter regarding co-parenting during COVID-19. And I think it's actually a really, um, you know, thoughtful message, basically, uh, you know, providing tips and some resources to folks, you know, sort of reminding everyone, like, just like try and be a little nicer to everyone and, and, and have some respect for the fact that we're all dealing, you know, this is a global pandemic. It's making everybody's lives worse. Um, and I, I think apropos of what we're talking about today, I, I wanted to, to remind people that that is there. And, and he's got, some, he, the chief provided some good links and resources, which I urge everyone to, to see. It's on that website, in that letter, um, the AFCC, which provides some really great, um, I'm looking at it right now, um, some, some resources for family lawyers, uh, for parents, for children. Um, and it also provides, um, what's called, uh, it's another document, seven guidelines, and, and maybe the panel's familiar with the seven guidelines for parents. Oh, thank you that, um, for sharing the screen here so you can see the link. It's uh, seven guidelines for parents who are divorced, separated, and sharing custody during the pandemic. 
um, and it's been written by a number of, you know, be healthy, be mindful, be compliant, be creative, be transparent, be generous, be understanding. And, um, you know, we're going to talk about parent coordinating today. And, I, and I, I, so I think it's worth just an important reminder to your clients. And if you're not a client, if you're, if you're a parent watching today, um, I want to, I want to offer that to everybody who's watching because I, I think it is critical. Um, so I urge you to, to, to look at that research and, and look at the, the you know, that documentation. Um, so having said that, you know, I wanted to start today with Francine and, um, and let, let's take a minute and I urge the panel to participate as well. You know, I want to talk about, and we had talked a little bit about this on offline, but, you know, from your perspective, Francine, now that the, you know, the standing order has been out for a couple of years, you know, your case, the Bauer case, it's been a couple of years since that came out, you know, and again, I don't want to get into all the nitty gritty of the standing order. I don't think we need to now, but, but, but what have you seen since that case came out and since the standing came, order came out and, and, and what are your thoughts about where we need to go to improve uh, the way parent coordinator uh, roles uh, can help these families? So um, just very briefly, I don't want to do a, um, you know, a legal analysis, but um, this case actually came out six years ago and it was based upon a um, objection by one party over um, a judge's appointment of a PC. And then three years later at the invitation of the SJC, um, the probate court came up with this standing order. Uh, and that standing order actually just um, has been in effect for three years. It started July of 2017. Um, although I think the court did a, a, an incredible job trying to uh, set forth rules and regulations, I, I find that a lot of PC parent coordinators um, or those of us who are willing to be parent coordinators, both um, attorneys and uh, mental health professionals find that some of the rules and regulations are um, quite um, overbearing um, and, and difficult to comply with. Uh, just this morning, I was refreshing myself on the standing orders and it requires about 70 hours of uh, training before you can become a PC. Um, you know, in, in regular terms, that's two full work weeks <laughs> of, of training um, that I'm not sure many uh, professionals have the ability to do. And quite frankly, um, given um, experiences of attorneys who have been practicing for 10, 15, 20 years or, or mental health professionals, much of the experience in dealing with uh, parent coordinator comes from just doing it over and over again and understanding the differences between uh, parents and parenting styles and what the court expects parents to do and, and how they expect to um, behave. Um, in terms of what should happen in the future, you know that I don't want to step on anyone's toes, but I know that uh, Judge Casey has said in the past that some of these regulations um, should be um, somehow amended or, or lessened um, such that the burden is not uh, a 30, 40, 70 hour training. Um, and because I think quite frankly, the court welcomes um, having more professionals involved. Um, it takes the pressure off of a judge. It takes the pressure off the court. It allows parties to have better access and more immediate access to um, a decision. Um, and I know that I've worked as a PC by appointment. Um, I haven't done the 70 hours of training. Right. 
but um, I know that you know others have. But at the same time, I'm willing to help in, a, in that PC capacity to to provide a more immediate need to parties. Um, and as we all know, parties have PC needs that are um, could be very brief in nature regarding a pickup and drop off, or can be something much more significant, such as a medical decision or an education decision. Um, so, David, I'm not sure if I answered your questions, but that's that's my little spiel right as of now. And, and what sort of issues have you seen um, regard, you know, one of the things that I find in my practice is we get hung up, you know, the, the one of the main, I guess the main point in the, in the case was, was the question of payment, right? Right. And how are you seeing that play out um, now when you have these cases in front of a judge? So I have actually not had an opportunity to ask for a PC that was objected to by the other side since the Bournet Bauer case, which was, as I said, six years ago, I find that a lot of parties and attorneys really do welcome the inclusion of a, a PC, um, and oftentimes their you know their payment is is shared. Um, I think today with today's PCs, you have a lot um, bringing it into the COVID times bigger issues with um, exchanging the children and and being considerate of. Um, those who are social distancing, and I know that we're going to get to that, but um, I have not found that there have been many objections um, by counsel. I think if you have two reasonable counsel, that we find the right person for the parties, um, and ultimately it helps. I don't know if you have had a different experience, David. No, not really. I mean, it was I was speaking to a, a sitting judge a couple, I guess, last week, and one of the we, we happened to be talking about this seminar coming up. And one of the comments that was made to me was the judge found it was always interesting where when people come forward and they say, well, I'm interested in parent coordinating, but I'm not interested in paying for it. Yeah. Um, so we sort of, you know, and then it's an, it's, it's, it's a curious position for the judge to be in, I think, because the, you know, I'm, the judge really can't order that the parties use parent coordinating Um unless there's some sort of agreement, I think, to, to, to share the cost, or I guess the, the court could order one side to pay or not, for, I guess they, right. they so can. Right? I but, do think yeah. that a judge can order uh, uh, the appointment of a PC with specific findings, which in my mind would require some sort of evidentiary hearing as to the necessity of a PC. And I often find that the person asking for the PC um, would be the one that the judge would, uh, in the first instance, require to pay. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if a judge could give the authority to a PC to reallocate funds over yeah. the objection of another. Um, certainly, you know, there's always ways for judges to even things out. Um, right. Right. After trial, there's, there's, you know, division of assets and finding behavioral um, uh, punishments, if you will, in terms of monetary. But I have found that um, most of the times good, two good attorneys can find the right person. Um, and I have not found a situation where a judge has appointed over the objection again, um, most recently. The other concern, uh, Francine, that you raise and stems directly from your case is that if there's not agreement between the parties to use a PC under section six, that PC is only gonna have the ability to make a recommendation and not a binding decision. Right. which in my experience kind of subverts the whole process. 
I think one of the benefits of having a parenting coordinator is the parenting coordinator's ability to make a decision that's binding until it's reviewed. If it's not, then there's plenty of other functions, parenting coach, parenting consultant yeah. that you could use that don't carry the onerous restrictions that a parenting coordination process does. For example, I think the appointment process could be streamlined a bit. Um, I know that there's a good intention to have um, the uh, spending cap language in there, but I find it it's kind of like somebody comes to you and says, Francine, would you handle my divorce? What's it going to cost me? You know, it, how do you answer that question? John, I would like some therapy. How much will it cost you to make me better? Uh, you know, I know the intention's good, but, but you know, we've got to find another way to deal with it. And one of my suggestions, if we ever have a review of the standing order, would be that PCs be required to do some type of pro bono work every year. I mean, guardian ad litems have to take state pay cases yeah. if they want to stay on the list. Why shouldn't a PC be required to do some type of pro bono work during a period of time or reduced rate or something? And I uh, think that's a great area to explore. It's interesting that you say that because I've seen, it's happened more recently, probably because of COVID, but judges are really pushing the, uh, the county bar conciliation programs. I, I, my, you know, I think it's happening. I mean, it's all, they've been around for a, a while, but I've had a lot of judges really trying to push that on people lately, probably because the court doesn't have time to deal with everything anymore. And um, to your point, you know, it'd be great to get people, uh, Tony or, or, or maybe John, if you can, can you just for the audience's sake, you know, I know that, you know, we get, conf maybe it's confusing. We have mediation, we have conciliation, we have, we have all these different ways to settle issues outside of court. What makes parenting coordinating different from those other processes and, and why might you want to do parent coordinating instead of something like that? John, you want to take that one first? Um, well, I'll, I'll give a brief answer and let you give a longer answer. You, you <laughs> oh, really the versus so, the mental health profession? <laughs> no, I think you, you do so much of this work and I really respect how much you've invested in it. Um, I come to uh, PC work as a psychologist and uh, as a child therapist and now family therapist. Um, I, as we're talking, I'm remembering ooh, 12, 15 years ago, I had a couple cases as a child therapist where there was a, uh, so, there were the PCs before the standing order who could talk to child therapists, which we can't do anymore, which is a, a restriction on the PC. But this is before I was doing PC work, but I was on the other side as consulting as a therapist to the, to the PC. So, um, but the PC as and I, I'll let Tony give more details, is very strict, um, you know, very strict things which you can and can't do in that standing order, which is very helpful. Now in therapy, for better or for worse, there's not too many on the you can't do this. Like, you know, although now we know you should not write letters to judges. So any, and frankly, many mental health people do not know that. So if there's any mental health people on the call, do not write call letters do to not. the judge. Um, uh, but, but otherwise, there's not much on the no column for therapists, uh, mm -hmm. at least legally. Now, psychologically, they should be careful, obviously. PC has very specific statements about what you should not do, which is very helpful to really get yourself in a particular role. When I'm not a PC and I'm a parent consultant or a family therapist, sometimes I can talk to a therapist. Sometimes I can do, I noticed uh, just rereading the standards this morning, it says the 
PC shall not provide legal um, legal advice, or we would all agree with that, but it also says that DN shall not provide any counseling. Now that's much trickier because we do counsel people on how to be co-parents and to be more more uh, collegial and uh, more calm in how they handle things. So that's a very interesting thing in terms of what you could do with PC and not do any counseling at all. But anyway, sometimes I'm more comfortable being the family therapist, family counselor, as opposed to the BC. But that said, I do PC work as well. And since the standing order, I have uh, really read those, uh, the, those regulations in terms of what I should or should not do. And I think it's very helpful to do that. Of the most complicated thing is not being able to talk to mental health personnel without a waiver. And that, there are ways to work around that, and then there's other times where it's a problem. Yeah. Tony, please, please go on after me and let me know how, how you see it. No, I think, I think it, you, you're raising an, a very interesting point, and it goes to Francine what you said a moment ago. When you have two respectable and respectful counsel who are really working in the best interest of this family, they're going to find the right PC. And sometimes that PC is a mental health professional, maybe for special needs child, or maybe because the family needs, if you will, PC light, right? Sometimes it's having an attorney who's going to be more comfortable making those binding decisions. And that's what that particular family needs. So the fact that we've got the spectrum of, of, um, of talent in the pool and the broader that spectrum of talent is and the deeper the pool, the better we're going to be able to serve the clients that need it. And, and I think having a conversation with the attorneys, I do this in all my cases, what are the needs? What, you know, what are you expecting? What are you looking for? And if it's not me, I'll say, okay, I think you should go see John. I think maybe, you know, he would be better suited for this or go see someone else. Um, and, and, and that way there we're, we're positioning the process so that the process doesn't get a black eye because it's not working, which is kind of what led in a, in a lot of things that fed up to, you know, not that Bauer, not that the case was a direct result of that, but I think it was some of the prior practices. And no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, one of the things I think, maybe this is a question to start with Francine, but, you know, I'm assuming just from my own practice, you know, things are a lot hotter these days, let's say. There's a lot more uh, conflict, whether it's appropriate or not. It just seems to be more. And I'm finding in general that people are just, a, you know, somewhere between a little bit more or a lot of bit more less agreeable about things, let's say. And I know a lot of, you know, media, at least from the mediation and conciliation side, I've talked to you know, some retired judges who do a lot of that work and they're saying it's much harder to settle cases the last couple months. Um, what are you guys seeing in your practices in terms of people coming to the table? You know, I know, you know, obviously I completely agree getting lawyers that are like-minded to get a PC on the books, but um, now where it's more complicated to get agreements, you know, how do you get that front door agreement to get into this process? Or how, or if you can't, you know, I guess you call Francine and, 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 and try and get into court and see what you can do. I mean, to get an order in place about it. Um, but I don't think you can get into court, David, at this point. That's, that's actually why PCs are really a better option at this stage, especially if there's already a relationship um, that's been established. 
have you been able to go to court on an emergency order? I mean, I've had cases where parties have, um, you know, accuse each other of not social distancing the right way or not yep. wearing the mask for long enough. Mm -hmm. Or forget about if you have a party who's in the medical professional uh, profession, which of course brings on another scary aspect of mm -hmm. COVID and the ability to bring it back. But I have um, parties where they just argued about whether or not they could go out to the playground with their child. Yeah. Um, and so everyone, you know, and, and no one is um, a, you know, being judgmental in terms of people's level of comfort with COVID or their level of, of social distancing or protection. But there has to also be some um, agreement between the parties and understanding that there are two different households, there are two different ways of approaching um, COVID, and you have to trust the other parent, which is really hard to do in a divorce situation because yeah. there's lack of trust and lack of belief that the other parent is doing the best. Um, so I'm not so sure you can run into court. Uh, I don't think a judge would be willing to actually listen to this type of, of motion. Um, you know, judges have a fraction of the, uh, of the ability to hear, you know, certain motions or cases. Um, they're not, in my opinion, they're not interested in dealing with these little minor um, infractions. And this is where, you know, John or Tony or any of the PCs comes into play and the ability to make those quick decisions and kind of set people straight in terms of no parenting plan still needs to happen. You need to take extra precautions, but here is the, here, here's the recommendation, the binding recommendation. It's going to continue. Um, I don't know if Tony and John, you've had similar experiences or even you, David, in terms of telling your clients or, or as a PC saying, no, it's going to continue. There's still going to be exchanges. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, for sure. Uh, Tony and John, what, what sort of conflicts have you seen regarding that? Um, well, it, it, go ahead, John. No, I haven't seen much. My, the, the one, uh, I, I, an issue came up where there were allegations against one parent against the other and a, and a refusal of parenting time. And it was my feeling that those allegations came up because of COVID, mm -hmm. because yeah. the anxiety was so, and you know, anxious people are anxious people, and this is just driving people over the edge. Yeah. So I think COVID was underneath that. But mm -hmm. by and large, I'm comfortable in making a recommendation if it's based on basic medical knowledge, but I know some other PCs that are really reluctant to do that. And mm -hmm you know, because they feel like I don't want to be the one saying this is the right thing. And so it really says, where is that line where you feel, okay, these people are talking about minuscule issues as opposed to there is a medical pro profession, a professional in a group, there is a risk of exposure. How far do you push to keep a parenting plan? I don't have an answer to that. I think Tony does. Well, I mean, it's funny. I've had, I've had two extremes. So I've got a bi-coastal family right? Where ah, okay. mom and dad are living in Boston on the West Coast and having to navigate what was a set parenting plan over this summer has changed almost month to month because yeah. of the, the, the respectful recognition on both parents' part that, you know, the medical situation is changing. Now, that it's, it can be contentious sometimes in how we get there, but at least they've got the perspective shared. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I've got a family that was literally a block apart in their homes and 
either because of COVID or because of parenting style, they weren't able to negotiate transitions and the kids were kind of running the show, going back and forth to whatever house they wanted to, whenever they wanted to. And the parents were pulling their hair out. So it's, it's, um, it is challenging. In the former situation though, where we're dealing with COVID and things of that nature, you alluded to a very important question, John, is that am I as a PC gonna make this decision? Do I want to be the one who says, yes, it's okay for Johnny to go visit his mom, and then God forbid Johnny gets sick or contracts COVID, do I want that on my plate? So the approach that I've taken has been twofold. First, from my mediation training, you know, getting to yes, what's the, what's the objective standard? What do the guidelines say? What, are the, what does the child's pediatrician say? What, I've got a case now with two moms where cancer is an issue. So does your oncologist have any input that they can give us on this? And how do we, how do we fashion a remedy that meets everyone's needs? So that, you know, that's the one aspect. And the other aspect is if I'm gonna make a decision, I put it right up front, I'm gonna default to the more conservative standard simply and solely because I don't want it on my conscience that I made a decision that, you know, even though it's a temporary order uh, of sorts, that's going to put a child at risk. But yeah. Tony, would you limit a parent's, I mean, do you think that you have the, the right or the authority to limit a parent's access to a child? And for how long can you do that? I would make a temporary accommodation, but I would know. No, I, I, section nine, it's funny. I just wrote, I was just writing to some clients this morning. Section nine of standing order 117 has a specific prohibition. And I don't know if a lot of PCs are mindful of this because it's really an important one. And it says that PCs are unable and it is prohibited for us to, to facilitate a conversation or an agreement rather that will impact custody or a parenting plan, dot, dot, dot though, if it impacts child custody. And I've had conversations with people who think that that means you can never have a conversation about altering a parenting plan. Right. And my yeah. answer is, well, if that parenting plan alteration that they want to explore, which I think is a legitimate function for a PC, it used to be pre-117, and I think that's one of the areas that might change. I think that's a useful conversation to have if it doesn't impact child support. If it does, then I'm sorry, the rule says I'm out. Yeah, and that's a that's a tough one. I mean, I get that question a lot, whether a PC, you know, are you just supposed to be bending the edges of these agreements? Or, you know, what's the line between, uh, you know, sort of moving them forward under the standing order or do or outright modifying the separation agreement or the judgment? Yeah. I, I don't think you can modify. <laughs> yeah. I think well, you, no, 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 of course. But I, think that, but I think on a temporary basis, you can. I guess the question is, What's temporary? Right. How long is temporary? You know, COVID started, you know, mid-March. Our children were no, stopped going to school as of March 12th. It's now, you know, almost August 1st. It's not temporary in anyone's mind anymore. So, yeah. and it, it's going to continue. So what does that mean in terms of bending the edges of the agreement? I like that phrase. Yeah. Um, but how, how far can you bend and how much can you bend? I think, I think you run into some issues because then it becomes a lot more permanent. Yeah. So Tony, I don't know if you have an example of what you've done that was temporary, 
but does it still ex does that temporary recommendation or, or order still exist? So, so what I try and do in that circumstance, Francine, is this. Okay, you've got your idea and you've got your idea. What if we were to try this idea as a trial for a couple of weeks or a month? And then what I try and do is I try and have people make decisions based upon their experience, the actual experience of whether or not this is going to work. Is this something that's too onerous? Is it, does it impact the kids in a negative way? And, and let's agree to try it for a week or two and see what happens. And then we'll come back and revisit it. And if we have to tweak it, we can tweak it another way. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not perfect, but it's the best you can do sometimes. You have to have very willing participants in that yeah, situation. Yeah. Well, I could, make, I, could make, I could make a binding decision that says, this is a temporary accommodation for the first two weeks. And then at the end of the two weeks, we will revisit it. Well, and as a practical matter, I mean, how quickly could someone get, I mean, I, I don't know that, I mean, I don't know that any of this would be an emergency. Um, if someone didn't like, you know, Tony's order, um, I don't know how quickly you could get in court to deal with it. The only way it would be an emergency is if a, a PC truly limited another parent's right. access, which right. I can't imagine would be in the best interest of the child, but that would really be the, the only, you know, but we have parents without PCs who really have limited access to their yeah. children because okay. one is a doctor or one is a nurse or one has exposure that can't be that that temporary you know fix can't can cannot continue um and it shouldn't be continuing it's interesting i had a case at the beginning of this where um parents actually agreed this is the parenting plan but because of the risks of covid exposure would have in one parent's household they agreed to limit the exposure significantly yeah. for about a month and a half. Right. And then when things started to change, they got back together. They, we had a conversation and we were able to facilitate a change that got it closer to, if not exactly on, on the point. And like you said, Francine, if you get willing parents, if you've got people who are willing to truly put their children's best interest as ahead of their own desire, um, you know, there's a lot more possibility for us to work this with. Oh, sure. Let's not underestimate the complexity of some of these issues though, because Tony just talked about a mom that has cancer. So I don't know how much you've seen this, but so many times I, I kind of assume I've got healthy parents and then they say, oh, by the way, you realize, oh, and this is really serious. You know, because uh, if you have a sick mom, you want to protect access to that mom. Now, a lot of cancer is not terminal, we know that. But still, you want to protect that access. So it just talks about the complexities of some of these decisions, not just the governor's guidelines, but the pediatrician, you know, all the other physicians. But that is really our job, frankly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, an important point I want to circle back to that Francine touched on, uh, Tony. So I think, I think that there's an important point here, and, which is, you know, it does take cooperation, at least from a procedural standpoint, to get into the parent coordinating. But, you know, I run into situations where, you know, there's a question about maybe the, you know, the more difficult side is sort of 
avoiding thinking that living in the ambiguity is, is, you know, more beneficial to their, you know, ongoing changes of position or what have you. But I'm, I'm just not sure that's actually true. And, you know, to Francine's point about access to courts, I mean, I actually think that, you know, whether you're the easygoing parent, the difficult parent, I'm not sure that's relevant. I mean, I really do think that there's benefits, especially right now, for everyone to get into these sorts of processes um, because there's just not as many options for relief like there might used to, you know, might used to have been. And remember, David, it started as a hybrid role. I tell my clients all the time, my first job is education. I want to educate you on the impacts of conflict on your children. Mm -hmm. and, how, and I talk to them about ACEs and I give them, I mean, I have a handbook that I actually prepared and give, give to them when we start to, to try and raise their awareness on matters that, as John said, these are complex issues that they're not, and it's unreasonable for us to honestly expect them to know this. The sad reality, and with all due respect to Francine, they come at it after this, right? They come into parenting coordination after this, and, and, and I have said this before, long before I was a parenting coordinator, I don't understand as a society how we can say the most sacred promise two people can make is best dissolved by having them get their surrogates go into a ring and fight it out. It's insane. It makes my head explode. I'm sorry. But you have to take that and you have to be mindful and cognizant of the impact of that. So the first step is education. The second is facilitation. I'll try and mediate. I try and do everything I can to not make that decision. Right. I, you know your kids. I mean, literally, I've had to say to parents, so let me get this straight. You want me to make this decision, me who's never met your children. Okay, you'll get it in two days, and I'll hang up. And I've had two occasions where 15 minutes later, I get the message in our family wizard, uh, you know, Tony, um, hold off on that decision. I think we're going to, uh, we can work this out. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, John, I wanted to, I wanted to touch with you for a minute too. I mean, I know, again, offline, we were talking about the way you looked at parent coordinator roles. I thought you had a really interesting take. Um, I know you, you're, you said your practice is sort of veered away from that. Can you share with us how you came to that conclusion? Well, that's for a couple of reasons, some of which is how, how, how well I can keep track of details because they do jail <laughs> work too. And to think I could do jail work and PC work all at the same time, I know lots of people do. I think that's a lot harder for me to do because in, in, it's true in all, the, all of this, but in PC, the details are real important. That parenting agreement is, you've got to have that right in front of you. But the other aspect is that I think I'm also suited to be a parent, probably more of a parenting coach where I'm doing some of what Tony's talking about. I'm really trying to mediate, but tr just trying to get to listen to each other. You know, I have had one or two uh, PC appointments pre-judgment. We haven't talked about that, but that's, uh, and I have a, a good friend does a lot of PC work. She's getting those requests all the time. They don't have a judge. They're not divorced yet. They don't have an agreement. So where the hell do you even start? And yet there is a certain role for those folks. So I have had those cases, but, but I think um, to, to doing the mediation and counseling piece, um, I like more and I feel I can do that without being a PC. That said, there's some families that absolutely need a PC because they're, as we know, they're not gonna, um, they're not gonna get to that agreement without a certain amount of pressure, which 
we, you know, as Tony said, you can put it on sometimes and say, okay, I don't think I should do this, but I will. Um, so, so there is a role as a parenting coach or a family therapist that can resolve some of these issues. And I'll just say, um, again, uh, I think I thought of that prejudgment case because there had been various, you know, abuse allegations, et cetera, et cetera. And these two people who weren't even divorced yet hadn't spoken to each other for a year. So not a single word. And you know, you, you've had people like this, not, not a word for a year, except in court. And now you're sitting down with them. So communication, just getting them to talk and talk about the child in particular, a lot happens in a year for God's sake. So just the process of getting to listen to each other is really key and um, solve some of the problems before you end up having to be easy to make the decision. So I take both appointments, but I'm taking fewer PC because I'm doing more family therapy. It's just that way. John and Tony, would you guys prefer that you become involved? Or I guess I should ask, when would you prefer to mm -hmm. first become involved? Um, and I know this is not particular to COVID, but maybe it is for some of these newer cases that are starting up. Um, especially there are, you know, people are realizing that living together 24 seven <laughs> isn't ideal. And so, um, and so when would you want to be involved as a parent coach um, instead of a PC to help these parties maybe develop plans or listen to them? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I've, done, I've actually done it before they've gone to lawyers. Okay. So part of my work as a relationship coach, both in businesses and in interpersonal relationships, is to look at the system and say, okay, what does, what does the relationship need right now? Every relationship has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's got high points and low points. Sometimes marriages end by death, and sometimes they end by decision. So if that's what this family needs, if that's what this system needs, how can we best do that in a way that's respectful, not just of the marriage that you had and the love that you once had, but of the obligations that you both have toward the children? And I'll explain the differences between adversarial and collaborative and mediation and, and, and self-representation. Go through all of that and in that process, educate them about the parenting plan and the need to, to work with the parenting plan. In all honesty, with 117 the way it's written, I cannot work with them on a parenting plan. You, as you know, Francine, I can't get appointed unless there's a temporary order that sets out the parenting plan. Now, pre-117, we could do that. That was a vital part of parenting coordination, was helping the lawyers and helping the families come up with a good parenting plan. So now we just call you a parenting coach. Right, exactly. But I don't have binding authority, do I? No, but I... I correct, but... I might, but, you know... I know. I guess my point is, is that, to me, if you have, again, willing participants who just need some help, a coach really is yes. ideal because you're not limited by the 70 hours of training, but you can use your already professional training and experiences to assist. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's usually, that would to me would be the ideal way to come in early. Other than that, you got to wait until the judgment is made. Like I said, and, the, and I hate to say it, you know, I've seen the needle and the damage done, right? Um, and you pick it up from that point. And then most of the work is remedial, at the least at the beginning. And I was, I was astonished um, just doing my sort of due diligence coming into this seminar. There's so many people who I actually thought were parent coordinators that aren't doing it at all. I mean, it's, it's unreal. I mean, because there's just so the training, many. training, right? 
Yeah, I, the, the training is really the big one. I mean, that's what I, you know, got from a lot of people that, you know, it's like, you know, someone I thought was doing it, um, you know, yeah. said, oh, no, 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 I can't, I couldn't do the training, you know, whatever the case is. I mean, I also think that I think it sounds like there might be, a you know, some burnout rate with, with doing this work. I mean, I, maybe Tony can speak to that, but that was some of the sense I got. I mean, the thing I'm curious about um, before we get there, Francine, what do you think? I want to flip this back to you. When you're negotiating a deal, whether it's at the beginning or in the separation agreement, you know, I'm sure you've done this, you know, sometimes I don't put parent coordinator. Sometimes I say, okay, I'm going to, we're going to hire Tony as, as a parent or a child development specialist or whatever. What do you think works out better in the negotiation? So I actually just started a, a, a new case and we immediately uh, opposing counsel and I came up with a parenting coach. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we actually found the coach before we even filed for divorce and before we even entered into any type of stipulation. Um, I think there's more buy-in at that point by both mm -hmm. parties. I think Tony said it the right way. Um, after a judgment, you have um, a lot of remedial work to do because Parties have spent tens of thousands of dollars getting divorced, right? And that mm -hmm. they have developed a high degree of dislike, possibly even hatred of the other party. And so Tony now then, or even uh, John needs to remind them that their mom and mom or dad and dad or mom and dad, and you know, let's dial it back. So I, um, I have had PCs and that's usually after a trial or, you know, a, a lot of um, court appearances because you need someone who has the ability to say it's going to be X or Y. Yep. But I find that having a parent coach, um, it's just an accepted third party, a, a professional where Party's like, okay, we need a little bit of help here. It doesn't sound like someone's gonna tell me what to do because people don't really like that either, other than a judge. But this person's going to really listen to me and he or she is going to give me you know, some guidance ha as to how to deal with it. So I like the concept of a parenting coach and you don't have to fully comply with 117 and all of the requirements. And you get the benefit of someone who has the ability to provide good feedback. Yeah, I think the front end is a really important point too. You know, whether it be mediation or you know, you're from my perspective, your your best shot is almost at the beginning before people really, you know, before the scud missiles start flying and things get you know really crazy. I mean, sometimes you're right; we can get them in later. But uh, I've always found if I can make a move like that at the very beginning, it it makes them. It can make a real big difference. Plus, then you can hand the whole case over to Tony and, you know, they, right. John and then, you know, they sort it out for you. They do all the heavy lifting. So that, right. that makes them, then we come out, you know, smelling like roses. Right. Um, can I ask a question? I know that we had a little bit of an agenda, but I wanted to ask about the whole concept of schools, going back oh, to yeah. schools, Please. micropods. And I know that I have some clients who are just raising that with me. That's yep. a huge custody issue. Yep. Um, it also is a very, you know, socioeconomic issue where uh, you have to be, have a lot of extra um, available cash to hire yep. these private teachers and pods. And I'm, I'm dying to know, Tony and John, if you have 
had that with your clients or anyone or or your thoughts yeah. on it and and how we're going to deal with that because that decision i think is coming up really soon and yep. so uh and david too i don't know if you've had i mean i have no, no. i, I want to hear from the these guys but let me just say before that i mean you know mike i, I'm, I am getting these calls i don't think this is going to be viewed as an emergency though um, and I can, I mean, most judges, you know, what's going on with the courts right now, and I'm sure you've heard this too, Francine, you know, even though we're, even though we're open, a lot of judges don't want anyone there. And what they've done as a, as sort of a convenient sort of practical matter is they've booked themselves. You know, a lot, I've heard a lot of judges are fully booked through the summer on virtual hearings, you know, the backlog. And what they did was they sat down. I actually think this is pretty smart. They sat down, they sorted out their calendar for the next three months. And on some level that gives them a lot of control about who's coming and going in the building. So I think it was a smart sort of logical move. But what that means is, you know, you're not getting a motion for temporary orders right. on a school issue. issue. Right. It's not, again, it's not clear if, if the schools are open part-time or whatever, and there's an apparent that's objecting to it and wants the bod, I'm not sure that that's going to be viewed as an emergency to get in. Um, te teeing that up, the real, I mean, the, the way to get a decision on that is to go to a parent coordinator. Um, if the parent coordinator has that authority, John, what do you Well, think? right. So, yeah, so that's the question. What do you guys think? I haven't had this situation. I'm, I would be open to some creative solutions. This is, this situation has just been so hard for families and we, you know, yes, distancing is the right thing, but it's very, it's been very difficult for kids. So I'd be open to that kind of thing, but if school is open and the parent just doesn't like what they're doing, it's going to be a lot harder for me as a PC to be convinced they should have a pod situation. But there are a lot of schools that are not, and then I would be open to it and, and just look at what are the risk factors and who's, you know, and I've had a few of these conversations. They're very conflict. Uh, complicated because yeah. everyone's reaction to COVID and where the danger is, is different. Everyone is different. Is it a grandparent? Is it a girlfriend with MS? Is it, is it a child with an issue? It's very complicated. So I'll stop there because I haven't actually had one yet. Yeah, and, and I have not either uh, had that specific come up. But John, I agree with your analysis completely. It is, you know, first and foremost, getting at least getting them to sit down and listen to each other and understand, get them off of their position and try and get them into interest to explore what's possible, right? Um, and, and I kind of rely a lot on the model that we use at the high conflict parenting class down at William James. Let's, let's put out a bunch of possible solutions before we even get to, to discussing them and see what they are. Um, on the issue, as is presented by you, Francine, I think I have to agree with John. I mean, if the government says, the governmental authority is that they're going to be having split weeks, it's going to be remote one week and in school another week, I don't know that I have the authority as a parenting coordinator to say, no, you don't get to send your children to school that week. They must stay remote. I just don't think that that's within my purview. And I haven't certainly haven't seen it in any of the appointments I've got. I'll be watching for it you know, coming up. Yeah. But again, I, this is where I want to talk with the lawyers before we get involved so we can fashion the scope of authority that meets the needs of, of, of the family. 
you know, does this, Tony, does this fall? I'm just, I'm just looking this over now. I mean, I, I agree with Francine and I, I, funny you should say, cause I had this very call this morning and I feel that a few of the, I know I mentioned to you guys when we talked last week, I mean, this is, I think this is the next big wave of, of really contested issues people are going to face. Um, whether, you know, not even the pod, but now, I mean, most, as far as I know, most schools haven't actually committed to the schedules yet, but I know, I know Boston Public Schools uh, and, and Newton and Wellesley, I'm just thinking of some cases I've had where we've talked about this. Um, most schools are now doing the all opt-out virtual. Like that's now available for families today. They can opt out for a full year of virtual. I don't, what I haven't been able to figure out is if you opt out, can you go back? Right. I'm, I'm guessing the answer is no. And then to Tony's point, you know, you don't, we, we still don't know yet if it's going to be, I'm assuming the ceiling on this is part-time. Otherwise this wouldn't be happening. But um, I mean, I wonder if, if, uh, if provision nine, you know, duties not permitted by parent coordinator, I mean, nine C specifically says facilitate an agreement by parties that would change legal custody. Does that, does that does oh, issue fall into that bucket? I'm not sure. I, I, I so I don't think, that a decision of that nature changes the legal custody. I think it, um, it refines their ability on a matter that is subject to legal custody to be resolved. Important distinction. Yeah. It's the lawyer in me. I hate it. It's sometimes like, no, no, I, 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 think I don't, I think that's a, I think that's a slippery slope when you, you know, are making a decision about, pod or no pod or you know virtual and then being able i actually disagree with you david i think that if you want to go if if you choose online and then want to go back into the a public school system i think they have an obligation the school system to accommodate that child i would be very surprised if they say no you've chosen mm -hmm. online and you have to stick with it from now until june mm -hmm. i don't know yeah. it's, it's, it's a lot of uh, it's just a lot of unknown um but but I think, again, a PC is the best option or a parent coach because you're not going to get guidance or an order from a judge on these things. You're just not. Right. And the other thing, too, is, I mean, a lot of this information is not going to be available till, you know, we're sort of speculating right now. We're probably not going to know for real till mid-August. And then you've got, you know, two or three weeks to pull the trigger on on some very complicated life, you know, planning. Yeah. There's no chance you're going to get accommodated by the courts to do this. Um, David, to throw it off, to, to make it a little more complex, what if mom and dad don't live in the same town? Yeah. Right? Now you've got one school system offering this and one school system offering this, and they've got, quote, a 50-50 plan. Oh, that's very challenging. Yeah, right? good point. Um, let's, let's, let's turn over to some – we've got a bunch of questions. I want to oh. make sure we get to all of them. Um, They've come up in okay, so two they came up in the chat and also in the question and answer. All right, let me do the chat ones first. Um, these are in no particular order. Um, how do you incorporate Massachusetts travel guidelines with a bi-coastal parenting or Florida to Massachusetts parenting? Shouldn't that control? I guess this is in reference to what Tony was talking about earlier. So what I've done is if we're in Massachusetts and that's where the children are, that's the locus that I'm going to look to. Same thing like driving in a car with a seatbelt. If California says, you know, age 10, and Mass says age six, well, guess what? At six, you wear it in Massachusetts, and, and until 10, you wear it in California. 
But now, of course, you can't really travel without quarantining for two weeks. So are you imposing a quarantine on these children who, if you allow them to travel or if you order them to travel? Um, That's a good tough question. One. I, I, that one, I would, I would not order the children to travel without having them adhere to the guidelines. If they live in Massachusetts and the Massachusetts guidelines says 14 days quarantine, then how are we going to accommodate that travel or that parenting time and still honor the, uh, the, the obligation of the guidelines? And again, I, I, remember, my goal here is not to make the decision if I don't have to. It's to educate the parents and get them to start thinking in ways that they're just not plainly accustomed to thinking about. I mean, literally, I've had one parent say, you know what, you're right, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to take the kids out to, to the West Coast. I'll come and visit them there. I know that was my plan. I'll change my plan. Hallelujah. Wow. <laughs> Remember, trust is rebuilt by the successful resolution of conflict. So if you can resolve a small piece of conflict, you've earned a little bit more trust. A little bit more trust. I mean, my clients come to me, they have what I call negative trust. Yes. You know, today's not Tuesday. It's nighttime and it's Saturday. Uh, Tony and John, are you guys familiar with the, the Massachusetts uh, parenting? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but have you guys participated in or or done any review of the parent the required parenting course when folks get divorced, the parent education program? I actually attended one. Years. Yeah, I attended one once. But it, it, it's been my sort of, uh, I guess, my thought. Unfortunately, I, I, I sort of feel like it doesn't, do a, a good enough job. You know, I sort of wish everyone was required to do the high conflict, uh, you know, unless they're coming, even, you know, even some of these cases, you know, Francine and I've, I'm, you know, we've both settled very high conflict cases. And, you know, you bring that 1A in and they, all they do is, you know, I'm sure Francine's had this happen before, you know, you show up, you haven't even done the parenting course and you're like, oh, can I have 30 more days to do it? And you know, that person like just sort of zips through it, doesn't even think about it. And, you know, on some level, it feels like a bit of a disservice to your point about the importance of education. Yeah. So one of the requirements that I have with my clients is when after we have our initial individual session with each and our joint session, I require all my parents to take the children in between course cost 130 bucks. It's 29 hours. It's used in a lot of states as a mandatory a substitute for the in-person classes. Oh, and they actually monitor it. They have question and answer, and they have to post their certificate of completion at the end wow. of the course. That's good to know. I don't know anything it, about that. It's phenomenal. A guy named Don Gordon put it together, Children in Between. I'm not shilling for him, but it is a great course. I've looked at a lot of the different online education classes. He's got a four-hour one for, not, for you know, normal cases, and he's got an eight-hour one for high-conflict cases. They're um, phenomenal. They're very, very effective. The, the, and the, help. I'll put the website in the chat so people can see it if they're Good. interested. Um, and now, Tony, do you know, is that, does that qualify for the, under the mass requirements? Or is not, that yet. Extra? Not, not yet. <laughs> what, what they did was the courses that were already in mass were allowed to, um, allowed to go online and teach remotely. And we're hoping now that the courts are going to get used to having remote learning, that they might consider, you know, adopting this as a as as another uh, another option. It's not, you know, it's not the exclusive, but it's very good. 
interesting. Uh, okay, next question. Uh, do you treat cases where there's domestic violence different from just high conflict cases? Absolutely. And how Absolutely. do you, what are the things you do? I start off with a MASIC myself. I use an interpersonal violence uh, analysis form. I want to know where it is because, you know, many people are under the, con under the misconception that, well, if I didn't hit her, it's not domestic violence. Uh, it's called interpersonal violence and it stems from coercive control to, you know, murder. So let's find out where we both are on this spectrum. The interesting thing is based upon self-report, very often, I see elements of coercive control on both sides. Um, and then I build how we're going to interact. Obviously, if there's a restraining order, you go get the restraining order modified so that you can participate in this process. I'm very familiar with those issues, and you have to see how people communicate. You have to even have to decide whether um, joint meetings are even a good idea or whether individual meetings. Not not even, not necessarily even because there's been a 209A in the past, but because you think that is the way to get agreement in education. Because you're not going to get agreement in education if you have a really tilted uh, a tilted uh, floor right in your own office. So you have to evaluate all that as you're starting a case. And uh, John, I guess this is for John and Tony. How has your practice changed because of COVID? Uh, conducting hearings virtually. And what do you think the um, impact of that is in your ability to get resolutions? Um, I, I kind of made I don't a, have an answer to that. So I made a decision a long time ago that I have an initial joint, an initial session with one parent, an initial with the other, and then an initial joint session. And I did that for years. And then before COVID, I started to use conference calls. I didn't like them because this lack of confidentiality and, and you lose a lot. And when I learned about Zoom, um, I pretty much use that as a regular alternative. I think it makes it less costly and less onerous to get people together. Um, you, you certainly learn more in, an, in a Zoom conference than you do on a phone conversation. And um, I've had, so I've been, I've been using it and I'm going to continue to use it. Now, the big change is I, up until COVID, I at least had that opportunity to meet with a par the both parents in person first. I'm starting cases now where that's just not the case. And like I said, it isn't perfect, but it's good enough, I think. Okay, interesting. Um, okay, the question and answer. Um, how does someone get trained and certified as a parent coordinator? <laughs> well, I think you need to look at Standing Order 117. And it yep. specifically tells you um, 30 hours of training in a mediation training program. So I think you can get a, any type of mediation training program through the MCLE or BVA, um, six hours of training in an intimate partner abuse and family violence domestic um, case. I don't know where you would find that, to be honest with you. I, I think- William James. William yeah. James does it, yeah, okay. They have an IPV course, yeah. And then there's 35 hours of accredited specialty training. Um, again, do you think William James offers that as well? Well, they do actually. Bob Zabel and I are gonna be teaching the parenting coordination class in the fall remotely and uh, and then we'll have um, this follow-ups, yeah. And, and the AFCC offers, the, we, we've now hooked the AFCC up with the chief's office and they were crediting a lot of the online learning opportunities that the AFCC is offering, the national, for accreditation for PC learning. Oh, good. Yeah. Interesting. You should also look at the Maggle, the Maggle, Maggle Inc. site. Maggle's that was, yeah. 
they, uh, for the past nine months, MAGO has been running seminars on a monthly or bi-monthly basis. So you'll see there also where you can get the training. So it sounds like three resources, right? MAGO, AFCC, and then also William, William James. William James. Great, thank you. Um, question for, it says, for Tony, can you talk about PC as quote unquote case manager in high conflict mm -hmm. cases aside from decision facilitator mm -hmm. or decision maker? <laughs> yeah, that's, um, so we are parenting coordinators, right? So we've got two adults, we've got uh, maybe therapists that they're working with, uh, maybe special education teachers, sometimes coaches, sometimes, uh, you know, other professionals that are involved in the family milieu. And, you know, it's surprising to some people to hear this, but sometimes you can't believe what the parents are actually telling you to be true. You have to kind of check it out a little bit. So, um, you know, being able to get releases and to tap into those resources, what I like to do with the therapists is talk to them both and make sure that they're in alignment on what they're trying to achieve in their individual sessions. These are adult therapists, not the kids, right? And then if I notice that there's some discordance, I've explored, I haven't had to do it yet, kind of say to the therapist, well, if the clients agree, would you guys talk about how to coordinate your work so that you're working this way as opposed to at odds? And, um, you know, I think that's a, that's a legitimate function that we as parenting coordinators can do. We can coordinate the whole team of, of people. It gets even more complex when you start looking at reunification cases. Now, if you've got John doing reunification work and Francine's, you know, the uh, therapist for, for one of the parents, you want to make sure that everybody's kind of, we all in the same, right, John? I do think a PC should let the different professionals in the case know what the deal is. Because again, they may be coming, they may have it all mixed up in their minds because of the source. And the PC can provide, I'm very careful about what I say, but I'm saying this is how the judge sees it, this is what my job is. And that helps the therapist guide themselves maybe a little bit better, yeah. very helpful. I also share, John, always the, the AFCC uh, uh, therapists uh, yes. sorry, guidelines, the CITs. I, I share those with therapists, although I have to- involve therapists. One case where I did that, and even after telling the therapist you can't, here's the thing, and here's the way privilege works with the courts. They released the records of the kid. I'm like, oh, yeah. man, oh, man. Oops. That's sad. Yeah. No. And, you know, I had a conversation with the kid, and he says to me, I'll be very honest with you. I'll never go to therapy again in my life. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, God. Very destructive. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, last question. What about uh, PCs? in cases with substance abuse, can a PC limit access to children based on sobriety <laughs> tests, for example? Um, go ahead, Francine. I was gonna say, so I actually am a PC um, in a case where I was given that type of authority, not necessarily a sobriety test, but I was given the authority to limit access after some um, analysis or, you know, or reports came in. Um, so I think, yes, you can have given that authority. I also think, yes, you can on a very temporary basis if you truly believe a child is at risk. Right. You know, I'm not a 50, I'm not a mandated reporter. Like I know, you know, John, you are. So that would be a little bit of a different standard. And Tony, 
You may be too, I'm not sure. I live but, to that standard though, yeah. Um, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, that's not a standard I have to comply with, but I think that as a PC, if you have good intel that a child is at risk, you ha absolutely have the ability to make uh, an emergency order. And then, you know what, let the person whose order is, you know, is against run to court and say that right. you were wrong. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm a mom of three kids, three boys. So to me, I, yeah. that, at that point, if you have to protect a child, even on a short term basis, I think you, you, you risk your authority and do that. And here's you don't do it lightly. You don't do it without some pretty clear oh, yeah. right. somewhere that there's a real problem there. People can make all sorts of allegations. You don't do it lightly, but yeah. you may have calls to do that and then you can do it. Yeah, I want, I want a test. I want an objective test that's going to show some type of testing. The other thing, uh, to your point, Francine, is this is where, as a PC, coming in and talking with the lawyers in advance, you can help them fashion the parenting plan so that the, the particular steps and consequences are already there. And then we just, we, we act as the, the stopgap. Yes, okay, you've met that. You've taken this uh, anger management course. Good. Right. Now that you've done that, let's move forward. Okay, now what about substance yeah. abuse? Are you in AA? Are you going? Do you have your chips? You know that type of work. Um, and, and it also works best, I think, when there's a mental health professional involved, because then the PC and the mental health professional can coordinate. What are you seeing? What are you seeing? Okay, good. We're ready to go. We feel comfortable. Let's, let's let it go to step two, step three, step four, if the plan is properly written and, and has that guidance in there. I agree. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, that's our time for today. Uh, went a little bit over, but we, we had some good questions, and I wanted to make sure we got to them. So thank you very much, panel. Thank you, audience. Um, we will be back on next week, uh, August 4th, and that session will be about uh, master uh, special master appointments with Judge Kaplan, Tony Doniger, and uh, we're going to get one more person to jump in. We had a fourth who unfortunately had to cancel at the last minute, but we're going to find a fourth. And uh, we're going to be talking about the limits of special masters, what things, you know, what creative things can masters get involved with. Uh, and a lot of interesting stuff has come up in the last couple months, you know, really uh, stretching the limits of, of, of what a special master can and can't get involved with to help move these cases along, especially right now. So we're looking forward to that one. Uh, thank you, everyone. And uh, we'll see you next time. Well, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Appreciate it. See you. Yeah.